song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. I would have to agree because what's more exciting than danger? And we're talking about something dangerous today, so I'm super hyped. We are, in fact, talking about the Dangerous Alliance, which is a a group that I'm familiar with in the sense that I loved everybody in the most commonly known incarnation. And uh, I'm a huge Paul Heyman fan, so I'm aware of the group. But when we talk about the Dangerous Alliance, who are we really talking about? Sure. So there there was a previous stable somewhere else by this name, also featuring Paul Heyman. But uh, who we're really talking about today would be Paul Heyman, Polly Dangerously, Arn Anderson, Larry Zbysko, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, Bobby Eaton, and Medusa. Those are the folks we're talking about in the kind of 91-92 WCW Dangerous Alliance. Which is an absolute murderer's row. Like, this pound for pound, I guess like person for person, it is the best stable talent-wise ever. I mean, I think the only thing you can even compare it to is the horsemen uh but the horsemen were put together very differently and had kind of a a different purpose but i mean they're the only basis for comparison that you can even think of and that's like saying you know the only team that they remind me of is the all-star team i will and you will probably disagree in terms of individual performers all being great I think Evolution is the only one that comes close for me, but obviously it's not as wide a group. And I don't think, but I think Batista would be the worst person in the Dangerous Alliance, but I do think he was good enough to kind of elevate, especially with Triple H and Flair in there. And I think what's most interesting for me is this is a flairless Arn Anderson. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the Dangerous Alliance kind of defines what WCW's initial kind of post-Flair strategy was, right? I mean, uh, Flair leaves for the, the WWE in September of 91, and the Dangerous Alliance forms in October of 91. So, I mean, they were the Sands-Flair strategy. And it, it speaks a lot to the confidence that they had in Arn Anderson and the value they thought Arn Anderson had to WCW, that he went from being in Flair's click to being in the new top heel click. Yeah, and he really ties the room together, I feel like, in as much as what I've seen He's the one that works best as a partner in crime to Paul Heyman. Or uh, I'm going to interchange Paul E. Dangerously and Dangerously and and Paul Heyman. Um, yeah, he just seems like he's the one that's on, and probably Zabisco to a certain extent, but I always felt like in the stuff I've seen that Arn Anderson is the one that's scheming the best with Dangerously. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like J.J. Uh, Dillon was always Tully's manager. Like he was the the horseman representative, but he was the executive vice president of Tully Blanchard Enterprises. They had that like special relationship. <laughs> and, and in the same way, I think that, yeah, yeah, Paul, Paul Heyman and Arn Anderson or Paul Heyman and Rick Rude really had that special bond where you got the idea that kind of Rick Rude was the kind of stud of the group. He was the kind of prize fighter in the stable. But that Arn Anderson, I agree with what you said, was really the one who was there kind of on Heyman's level, kind of scheming with him and was definitely the the elder statesman of the group, even though, as is always pointed out, Arn Anderson was deceptively young at almost any point in his career you're thinking of. It, it almost feels like... Rick Root is the star quarterback and Arn Anderson is like the old middle linebacker middle linebacker that's also the captain of the team and Paulie Dangerously is kind of the coach. They had a very 
he had a very active role in this again the scheming and the different ways to screw over the baby faces that they came up with oh yeah 100 percent. i think that was something that you know arn had that connection to the horseman and the horseman had really been put together to to get jeopardy on dusty and his pals like dusty and magnum ta and later you know nikita koloff the road warriors etc etc and, and I think it was a, a somewhat self-conscious effort to recreate that, to give the new generation of baby faces that WCW was desperately hoping were going to work out, uh, to kind of give them that same kind of rub that the horsemen had given Dusty. And I think what's most crazy, I mean, Larry Sabisco's Larry Sabisco. We're not going to talk about him that much. But Steve Austin and Bobby Eaton are two guys we haven't really talked about, and they're right there on the list. They're right there in the team. Like Steve Austin and Bobby Eaton are two of the all. Steve Austin's obviously Stone Cold Steve Austin, one of the all time all time greats. And Bobby Eaton is a, as we talked about the past couple of weeks, a beloved back guy in terms. He's a wrestler's wrestler. It's just absolutely stacked from top to bottom with performers. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think you're right to say stacked from bo- top to bottom with performers. Maybe when we're talking about the horsemen or evolution, as you correctly pointed out earlier, when we're talking about those groups, like th- those are teams of stars. That's like the old A's, like the staff of aces or whatever, you know, a- and the dangerous Alliance were a great group, but I agree that they were a great collection of performers, not a great collection of stars. They were great wrestling talents, but they were, by the, the standards and the terms of the business, they, they were really a team of carpenters, not a team of aces. They weren't, you know, trying to dominate and win the championship. They were trying to build something. This, I mean, the early 90s, it, you don't, if you're listening to this show, you probably know that the early 90s were a massive downturn rebuilding period in the wrestling business. And, and, and the Dangerous Alliance was a self-conscious strategy to to dig your way out of this hole by just kind of getting back to wrestling fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And while it's a different group of people, I think it's important to understand the dangerous, the original dangerous Alliance, the one that you hinted at earlier, um, not just because it connects to our Jim Cornette episode, but because the idea of Heyman managing a group of people is something that I think we see now as, of course, it makes sense. And if you watch during the era, the Bill Watts era, he's definitely a great manager. But And then you have the Paul E. era of ECW being in charge of ECW. And I think we kind of get to this idea of Paul Heyman slash uh, Paul Heyman, Paul E. as a wrestling genius in a meta sense. And at this point, he's just, and and at the very beginning of his career, he's just a good hand as a manager, uh, if not necessarily in the ring, on the mic, and uh, around the ring. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's someone who, uh, we talked a lot about this with Jim Cornette two weeks ago, so I I won't repeat too much. But, you know, he's someone who... uh, that you know, he wound up on the other side of the camera because he was so good at getting heat with the with the wrestlers and with the office people in the back. You know that that he just had a, a a hateableness wafting off of him that people in the wrestling business couldn't wait to get on TV. Um, if you are a patron of the show at Patreon.com/slash/hwetw, you know from the follow up files that Paul Heyman was an errand boy for the Grand Wizard Ernie Roth, one of the three wise men of the WWWF uh, throughout the 70s. So he started as kind of an errand boy. Like uh, like Cornette, he got his shot you know, on TV uh, in the AWA and kind of some of the sad later points in the AWA's history. And he had his Dangerous Alliance there, which was actually 
the original Midnight Express, not Dennis uh, and Bobby, who we talked about somewhat over the last couple of weeks, but Dennis and Randy Rose, who had used the name Midnight Express uh, previously. So the original Dangerous Alliance was the Midnight Express and uh, Austin Idol, I think it was, in, in the dying days of the AWA. And when he wrapped up that run, that's actually when they came to Jim Crockett Promotions and did the bloody suit angle that we talked about uh, at the end of the Jim Cornette show. So a nice uh, interconnectedness, really, between the Dangerous Alliance and the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette and Paul Heyman. It's, I really love it when a plan comes together, Nick. And uh, what I think is funny is... No, I, th- I think it was funny. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that. I, we spent uh, after we tried to record an episode, a bunch of things went wrong, so we ended up just talking on the internet together, like cool kids. And we ended up spending about ten minutes talking about the Paul Heyman or Paulie dangerously at this point, Jim Cornette tuxedo match. And I texted you specifically to say, you know what? This is not actually that bad of a match. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of it's Jim Cornette being an actual good worker in the ring for not just for a manager, but like uh, the worst wrestling worker you've ever seen, but pretty much the outside of Heenan, the best managing worker you've ever seen. Are you trying to say that he wrestles like a manager and manages like a wrestler? Yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to say. Um, And also there's a lot of pathos in Jim Cornette. Jim Cornette actually at that point has completely blown out his knee in the famous uh, spot off of the scaffold. And Paul Dangerous, uh, Paul Heyman attacks that knee and actually gets you to feel sympathy for Jim Cornette, which he's a pretty good babyface because, again, he's a good worker and he really shows shows out what he makes everything look good and he can throw a pretty good working punch. So that, I mean, that's, that's what makes you a baby face. Um, and right, Dave. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you gotta do the fired up comeback, right? You gotta, you gotta righteously punch the guy three times in the face before you shoot him in the ropes to do your spot. Absolutely. Or uh, strip him naked in the case of a tuxedo match. But uh, the reason I bring this up is that watching that you understand why Paul Heyman was never a wrestler why it's really it would be really hard to imagine it'd be really hard to imagine him in any real way as a babyface. He is not a babyface and I think that's part of what makes the Dangerous Alliance in any form work so well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right to point out that it's not even necessarily the the physical prowess prowess, the wrestling greatness that made them such good heels. It it really is the emphasis on the psychology. I mean, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit here in terms of the chronology of the Dangerous Alliance, but I mean, their kind of big coming out party was when they did the uh, Rick Rude U.S. title win over Sting, where at the beginning of the show, they had uh, Sting's bad knee injured, which once again, obviously something that a Heyman likes to do, considering you just mentioned a match from just a few years before where they'd done exactly the same heat spot. But, uh, you know, they had Sting's injured leg, and you had Bobby Eaton in the back promising him, like, Sting, you got to go to the hospital. You got to get it checked out. I promise there's time for you to get back before the match, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Sting finally does go to the hospital, and he, he winds up getting, you know, screwed out of the title and everything. But it, it actually was very neatly tied together psychologically, where it turned out, you know, Bobby Eaton was a bad guy all along. Had it told him to go to the hospital because he knew that he, you know, would forfeit the title if he didn't make it back in time and stuff like that. So even though there were all these great workers, these people who could put on these just 15, 20 minute clinics that really, really 
held the pay-per-view and clash shows together at a time when the pay-per-views and the clashes really desperately needed to be held together. But when we talk about kind of the cumulative strength and the cumulative ability of the Dangerous Alliance, it's not just that ability to have the great matches and hold the shows together. It's the ability to put out those angles and those storylines that really, really work and really, really resonate. Because when you don't have Ric Flair out there to get everybody else over and to show everybody, you know, why your wrestling company is so great, then you actually, to come back to something I said earlier, really need to focus on the fundamentals, on psychology and on heat and on getting the baby faces over through heel psychology and heat. And uh, in the process, try to get Rick Rude over, which we keep on hinting at, but Rick Rude... I don't want to say, I guess it might be a tragic story. He really was on his way to being one of the all-time greats. And I think he kind of got his, uh, it was his back, right? He had issues with his back. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, he and Sting were wrestling in Japan. And stay, he was out on the outside. And Sting gave him a crossbody like a plancha. And uh, he caught Sting and fell to his back. And he fell right across a bar of uh, stage lights and broke his back. Um, and he had one of the Lloyds of London contracts, so he sat out. I mean, I don't think he actively wrestled again. He was a manager in the Attitude Era for DX and the NWO, but I don't think he ever really was a wrestler full-time again after that. Yeah, and he had really risen. To, uh, he had been in WWF championship matches with the Ultimate Warrior, and uh, he was briefly, was it WCW International? Cha- it was. Was he actually WCW champion, or was it some sort of like uh, shell game version of the WCW championship. Yeah, that was, that was very much a shell game title, the, the international title. I and mean, it all goes back to, as we alluded to at the beginning of the show, Flair going to the WWF with the physical NWA title belt, which he had a legal claim on, which we've talked about in the follow-up files in the past. Um, but, but anyway, yeah, he, he was only ever international, uh, champion and U S champion. I usually think of him as, as the U S champion, but he did wear that kind of, um, that, that kind of greeny big version of the big gold belt that was the international title. And, and you mentioned Flair leaving, um, they form right after that, right? So Flair leaves in September and then at Halloween Havoc, they do the cruncher angle where Arn uh, Anderson and Larry Zbysko break Barry Windham's hand. And that's kind of the beginning. And then that same night is when Rude debuts under the hood and pulls off the mask and they're all, oh, holy shit, it's Rick Rude, blah, blah, blah. I, they formally uh, banned the night after that clash where Rude wins the U.S. title, where they do the big angle with Bobby telling Sting to go to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and like you mentioned, uh, they were kind of the stars of the clash while they were around, right? Yeah, I mean, throughout 1991 uh, and into 1992, they were really kind of the the anchor of the TV product, both the weekly show and, of course, those clashes. I mean, now when you get on WWE Network, if you look at WCW pay-per-views from the early 90s, it's a really huge mixed bag, but you should definitely also be watching the clashes because WCW's relationship with Turner and with TBS and, and the importance of wrestling on TBS was always like a huge major thing. So I always think that those clashes are kind of even more the pay-per-views than the pay-per-views were, if that makes any sense. And yeah, they were definitely the stars of, of that Clash 17 in late 91. That really was a, a magnum opus, a real high watermark at one of the low watermarks of the, of the, in the history of wrestling, to be honest. I mean, the whole show, basically, even though there were, you know, nominally... 
you know, Tom Zank was on the show, Van Hammer was on the show, whatever. But really the show was about this big, huge scheme to get the U.S. title off Sting. And as you were alluding to earlier in the show, to kind of turn Paul Heyman from just this heat seeker who was an obnoxious yuppie into someone who actually was an evil genius. Not just someone who said he was, but someone who actually had the ability to build a scheme, to kind of build a team of the right players and to to carry them out. And I've talked in follow-up files, I keep bringing it up again, but you should be a patron of this show, goddammit. Uh, I keep bringing up the greatness of the clashes in the follow-up files. And I think Clash 17, even if you look at the card, you're just like, well, there's a bunch of names from the early 90s. But I really encourage people to watch that one on the network because just top to bottom, uh, it's a great cohesive story of the of the dangerous alliance coming together and the kind of scheme behind everything. And Clash of the Champions, and I- I've watched all of them at this point, I believe. Um, they're almost like nationally televised basketball games where not every team gets them all the time. Uh, not everybody gets mm-hmm. to be That's on them comparison. all the time, I, like I should that. say. Um, but the teams that do get on there, the groups that do that get on there, the performers that get on there often are the people that the league, or in this case, the, uh, the W, uh, the WCW, WCW, Who are you, Hulk Hogan? the WCW brother, uh, the WCW is trying to build as, like you said, their stars, the backbone basically of their entire operation. Yeah. I mean, you had, you know, you had Dustin Rhodes, you had Sting, you had Brian Pillman to some degree, and maybe you thought you had Tom Zank at the time, but I mean, Z-Man. <laughs> I, I love all those people and I enjoy their matches very much. Dustin Rhodes obviously became an all-time great wrestler. Brian Pillman was a super impactful guy in his short run. I mean, you have, you know, Ricky Steamboat, who was a great worker. But all of those baby faces who they were trying to build around were guys who desperately needed help. You know, were guys who could do the fired up comeback like Steamboat or Rhodes, but who desperately needed that 15 minutes of heat to get them there. Yeah, (laughs) that is a really nice, like uh, Sting, as we mentioned before, is always at his best just getting absolutely destroyed by somebody who he has no chance against. Listen to the Vader episode. Go to the vault. (laughs) Uh I, yeah, I was trying to not mention the Vader episode specifically, but yeah, that is the quintessent. That match is Sting in a nutshell, and and it basically, it's almost like the Dangerous Alliance altogether equals one Vader, and I don't mean that as a knock against either group of, uh, either guy, uh, either Vader or the group. It's that they could destroy you in so many different ways. Like you said, it was almost like they he got together a heist and they stole the U.S. championship. I mean, that's basically what they did. They they had yeah. a heist and they stole it. <laughs> no, it really is. I mean, that, that that's kind of the, the Ocean's Eleven remake. I haven't seen any of the sequels, but I saw the first one, the first remake. Uh, but the, what's the most interesting part of that movie? The most interesting part of that movie is assembling the team. You know, that the actual heist is cool and is the payoff, but it's like, ah, you kind of know they're going to do it because it's built to that point. But the most interesting part is, yeah, assembling the, te- assembling the team and you know, finding the folks who have the different skills. And while that didn't necessarily play out on camera, like you didn't see Paul Heyman going around trying to recruit people to become members of the Dangerous Alliance, it wasn't like that. But when you saw the group of people standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, you could see the thinking that went into it. You could see how they were all complementary pieces, how one of the, you know, none of them was a god or a superhero, but one of them was a plumber, one of them was a carpenter, one of them was an electrician, uh, one of them was a decorator, one of them was a painter, one of them was a roofer, and together they were going to build a hell of a house. 
And the reason it makes sense, at least for me, that they all came together the way they did, that all the, the puzzle pieces fit together, was that they're all just good old-fashioned heels. And, and that's what really made it work, is everybody was pulling in the same direction, which was to drag the good guys down to their level. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're good old-fashioned grinders, you know. It's not exactly... Uh... It's not exactly Ole and Gene out there. You know, I mean, these were some folks who were great workers, but they were all, you know, next level heels in their own way. Like we said, Polly Dangerously, you know, annoying and scheming. Arn Anderson, you know, um, a brawler and a tough guy, but also a chicken shit at the end of the day. Like Rick Rude, a brawler and a tough guy, but also a quick bumping chicken shit at the end of the day. Steve Austin, you know, a big, wide, impressive looking cat at the time. When you look at Austin's shoulders and chest at this period of time, you're like, Jesus Christ, of course that guy was going to become the biggest wrestler in the world. Uh, but, you know, but but at the same time, again, in spite of the look, a guy who was a chicken shit, a guy who took the Ric Flair bumps, who really flew around for guys. Same with Bobby Eaton, a guy, a guy who was all about the match. You know what I mean? So it, it just all comes back to you. None of these were guys. It wasn't like today where... And I, I hate to sound older than I am by motherfucking today's wrestling. <laughs> I don't mean to sound older than I am here. But it wasn't like today where you were going back and forth doing your moves and like there was this appreciation for, oh, I want to make sure you get this and this and this. And I want to make sure that you get this and this and this. Like that was not going on. The idea was to let the baby faces get their shit in at a pace in a sequence and in a manner that were appropriate to get them over. And none of these guys, whether it was Rude, who was, you know, a pretty good sized star, like you said, had main evented in the WWE, whether it was Zbysko, who was on kind of the back end of being a productive wrestler, or whether it was... But I, I think it's important to say with Zbysko, one of the, I mean, one of the major stars of a previous era. He was a he was a huge star with Bruno San Martino. So it wasn't like he was just some guy they picked up off off of the scrap heap. Oh no, and he was spectacular at what he did, which was he was the kind of old school heel psychology of like the stall and being a real chicken shit. Like not even like Rude or Austin who kind of were tough, but also were cowards. Like he was the coward all the way. Like he didn't want to get in the ring. And then when he finally did get in the ring, he didn't want to lock up. And then when they finally did lock up, he wanted the break. And then when the ref came over and asked for the break, he thumbed them in the eye and then he got right back out of the ring and started it over. You know what I mean? That yeah. Once he, again, the, just, it, outside of the ring was the powder room. He was just like hanging out there. <laughs> exactly. And it, it, it's like, uh, I think a lot of folks, yours and my age, when, when a, a large group of us seems to collectively get back into wrestling about 10 years ago, I remember seeing stuff online and just reading things like, oh, Larry Zbysko, he was the worst. He was so lazy. He never wanted to take a bump. He never wanted to lock up. He never, you know, wanted to wrestle the guy or whatever. And then, you know, with a little more uh, with a little more perspective and now seeing an era where all guys want to do is do moves to each other. Uh, now I see the, the wit and wisdom of Larry Zbysko in New Life. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, we haven't mentioned Medusa. Um, who, of course, also went by Alundra Blaze in WWF. She Don't tell her that. <laughs> uh, and is uh, either now or once was a monster truck driver um, under the same name, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, she is also a pioneer of women's wrestling, at least in America. Um and she also has a really weird relationship with Paul Heyman, or at least on camera she did. I don't know what it was like in real life. 
so at first the idea was that she was initially kind of brought into the Dangerous Alliance as like a I I am going to use the language of the time and the language that Paul Heyman uh, would have used. So uh, if you're easily offended, push fast forward 15 seconds. She was originally a paid floozy of sorts, uh, whose whose job it was to kind of cozy up to the baby faces to distract them. In fact, on that big class show where they got the U.S. title off of Sting, I think that she was the distraction while Luger snuck up on him and clipped his injured knee and stuff. So, but the idea, of course, was you know she was a great wrestler. And that she was kind of the babyface sleeper within the group, where you know she was the one who was getting held down, and she was being presented as just a valet. I mean, so one thing Austin talks about now on his podcast sometimes is like he wishes to death that he'd known more to do with her because she was so talented and being so wasted as a valet. But uh, you know, she was really being wasted as a valet, and then ultimately she rebelled against that image. She you know kind of uh, went to Heyman and said, "Hey, I don't like that you just use me as sex appeal, and I'm a great wrestler. In fact, you know, I'm a much better performer in this business than you are, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And they ultimately spun the two of them out into a feud. Yeah. So I mean, everybody. Uh, I don't know if they got over because it's hard to say definitively that they got over. At least, I, I guess I would say this relative to how great this roster was the level to which they became the business was almost disappointing is that fair to say huh well i it kind of comes back to we, we, we keep coming back to this idea of like what do you do when rick flair's not there and wcw did such a bad job answering that question that like when he finally came back, they just pretended it had never been a question anyway because they didn't care to answer it. You know what I mean? But I, I guess that, you know, Ric Flair had been plugging a lot of holes in the proverbial dam. I've already used one word, uh, so I won't use the other. Uh, he already had, you know, he had, he was plugging so many holes that they just needed this, they needed a half dozen people to, to fill all the same holes that he had. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Wow. I guess put that one in the 30 for 30 right there. Huh? That, that'll talk Tony Schiavone's story. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> but no, but uh, he was plugging. Uh, I'll just say it. He was plugging so many holes in the dike that it did take six or eight people to make up for what Ric Flair had meant to the company. But unfortunately, as you say, you know, Ric Flair just needed one belt, and Ric Flair only needed 10 or 15 minutes of TV time every other week to get himself over, if that much. You know what I mean? When you need to get over six or eight people, well, then you kind of do need to build the whole, start to build the whole show around them. And then we start to see kind of what really became of wrestling in the kind of late 90s and still persists to some degree. Which is... Which is the show being dominated by a group which never works, no matter how good the members of the group individually are or how good the psychology of the angles is. Nobody actually wants to watch a gang or an authoritarian group control the wrestling show. Nobody wants to see that. Maybe for a couple of weeks, but it, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, for instance... The corporation in the late 90s, I think, is the thing that comes the closest to doing that. And that's because Stone Cold Steve Austin was such a force of nature. And then after him, The Rock was such a force of nature that they were actually bigger than that entire group of people. And 
it was almost as though they were holding down or the baby, the super baby face was holding down the group of heels as opposed to the other way around. You cannot have in the NWO with the authority, all of these times people get tired of it very quick. And I'm not saying people didn't get tired of the corporation, but I feel like that was the one time it worked. And it wasn't that the heel stable, which was pretty loaded in terms of talent was bet uh, was the best thing going it's that they were against the best thing going that at such a level that it didn't matter who they threw up against them yeah and unfortunately as we alluded to earlier when you look at the wcw roster of the early 90s even though there's names that we like now think of as hall of fame names none of them were there in that moment like none of them were ready to unseat the dangerous alliance really uh, you know it, when you talk about rock like triple h was ready when you got into 99 2000 when you get into the smackdown era like triple h was ready for better or for worse to knock off rock and austin and be on top and in wcw it's like you had sting who was supposed to be the guy sitting on the throne but he either didn't seem that interested in it or just maybe wasn't as good as everybody thought that he was going to be when he finally got there. Spoiler alert. Sorry. <laughs> you had Luger, who was really the same story, and they and he was turned heel at this point as well. You had Dustin Rhodes, where there was this resentment somewhat backstage, and then, then there was this idea on TV that, like, here's Dusty again. Here he is in cowboy boots with fringe like why is he still dressed like it's 1984 you know like the, just there were these problems with all the baby faces and i just don't i think part of the problem was the dangerous alliance got too good too fast and nobody else was ready for them whereas with the corporation austin was ready and then when you had austin and rock the super baby faces then eventually like you said triple h was ready you know what i mean so but it, it, the, the business wasn't good enough for the Dangerous Alliance at the time. It's a, that, that's sad. That's, that's... We just didn't deserve them, Nick. Speaking of things that people don't deserve, let me tell you, Nick, about the hours of work in last week's follow-up files. Tell me about it, Dave. Let me tell you, Nick, we're never allowed to talk about movies ever again because I was making so many different, you know, uh, little references and so many different one-liners about every movie and every actor and trying to provide more context by linking people to biography, Wikipedia, IMDb pages, YouTube videos, etc., etc. There's just so much added value out there that I just don't know that the people really necessarily deserve it. <laughs> unless, unless, you know what the people could do to deserve six to eight work hours out of my brain every week? Uh, they, could, they could, if they really wanted to earn something great, they could go to patreon.com slash HWETW and support us at the $2 level each month. That means you get the pre-show notes, like the little organizer that Nick and I created before we started this conversation, and you get those follow-up files where I go back, listen through the show, and grab all sorts of references, all sorts of more cool stuff for you to watch, read, look at, listen to, etc., etc. So it's tons and tons of follow-up content. I mean, if you listened to this show, I mean, these usually run about an hour, give or take, and if you read the follow-up files and went down every rabbit hole, I think you would use up every minute of your time until the next episode of our show dropped. <laughs> 
So if you're the kind of person who digs this show, if you're the kind of person who wants more of this kind of stuff, and if you want to feel worthy and deserving of our greatness, which you surely are not in this moment, unless your name is Mark or Dylan, <laughs> uh, make sure you mosey on over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and sign up at that $2 level. Even if you don't have $2, even if you just have $1 per month, you're like that old lady in the Bible. You're just given the two pennies and then the apostles hate her. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 she's the best or whatever. Even if you only have $1 per month, we'll take that too. And we'll give you a call out on the show. So check us out on Patreon if you dig this. If you don't dig this, you can just delete the podcast right now and go fuck yourself. I mean, why would they have even made it this far, hypothetically? It's evident how grating I am very quickly. It doesn't take 20 or 30 minutes, however far in we are. You see what I just did? That was a pro. I gave you some room there, Nick. That was very professional of me. I didn't give an exact time cue. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know I was saying it was sad. Um, and uh, for those that don't know, I have a very big place in my heart for young Dustin Rhodes. But I, I have to agree, there was just no way and there was nobody on the roster that was able to take on that group. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and I think we saw the ultimate embodiment of that at, uh, at WrestleWar 92, which is the famous uh, Dangerous Alliance War Games match regarded as you know, if not the greatest war games match, only second or third to the first couple. Um, but but in that match, they took on Sting's Squadron. Nick, would you like to guess some of the members of Sting's Squadron? These are ostensibly the top baby faces in world championship wrestling, meaning among the greatest, most popular, and most powered up by the energy of the fans, wrestlers in the world. Um, Robocop? <laughs> Actually, I mean, Sting had already had his uh, his super uh, broy friendship with RoboCop a couple of years earlier. Uh, one of the best moments in Jim Ross's book Slobberknocker, by the way, is uh, his reaction to first being told that he was going to call an appearance by RoboCop. I'll just spoil it, actually, because it's so good. Buy the book anyway. His response was, as in from the movie? <laughs> Fucking RoboCop? <laughs> It's so good. And when you read it, 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 the way he writes it, it, it is very, very funny the way he and Paul O'Brien put that story together uh, in the book. Anywho, Russell War 92, we have Sting Squadron, ostensibly the some of the greatest babyface wrestlers in the world. You see how I started qualifying it right away because even <laughs> I, who am full of shit, couldn't say. Uh, anyway, so you have Sting, of course, did Sting Squadron. If he wasn't there, that would be bad, even by WCW standards. Uh, we have Barry Windham. In 1992. Oh, uh, I was like, yeah, it's not that bad. And then you said the year. And I was like, wasn't he already the Widowmaker for a little while? Yeah, you know, there is such a hard line in the sand between Jim Crockett, Barry Windham, and I'm sure the Florida Barry Windham who came behind it. But that kind of NWA Barry Windham and the WWF slash WCW version of Barry Windham, like the national television version of Barry Windham just was not a great legacy builder. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think, you know, he was one of the people who had that stink of flair leaving on them. Like, you know, they, they did the match with him and Luger to decide who the champion was going to be. And everybody's just chanting, we want flair uh, for their like entire 15 minute match. So, I mean, he was someone who by 92 had really, 
I don't want to say he was dead on arrival, but uh, he was dead shortly after arrival. Uh, we have Dustin Rhodes, who had all the problems we talked about before. Ricky Steamboat, who, again, one of the definitive stars of Crockett in the 80s, but, and I'm not saying he wasn't still a great wrestler who had a lot to give in 1992, but we're talking about, like, top baby faces who are supposed to be getting the rub of, you know, defeating this great group that psychologically dominated the company for whatever it was, you know, uh, six months at the time. So, you know, he could have been like the fifth guy on the team who was just mentoring the other people, but it's like, no, he's one of the core guys. (laughs) And then finally, and I I do want to bring up Dustin Rhodes again. I don't think he was ready, but I think at this point he could have been built into something. So I think out of everybody, uh, though you haven't mentioned the last person, I feel like Dustin was the only one that made sense, that was worthy of what was going to happen or could have happened, and had the natural ability at the very least to actually profit from it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Underneath on this show... You did have, like, you had Brian Pillman and Tom Zank. Like, they were wrestling each other, you know what I mean, for the light heavyweight championship. I think it was at the time. But, I mean, those were two guys who, like, if you had had a team that was maybe Sting, Dustin Rhodes, Pillman, and Zank, like, at least you're making Sting seem like the, like, chief cool guy, but, like, everybody else is an up-and-coming cool guy. But instead you have, like, Dustin Rhodes, who's young and -and up-and-coming, and Sting, who's in his prime, and like Wyndham, who should have been in his prime, but kind of looked and wrestled older than he was. And Steamboat, who was always kind of daddish, especially at this point in his career. And then finally, you had like Nikita, who's like the big, hairy Russian bear. Like, all those guys are fine wrestlers and played important roles in the history of WCW and Jim Crockett promotions. But other than Sting and Dustin Rhodes, everybody on that team's best years are behind them. Or most. Nakita! Sorry, I held that in as literally as long as I could. <laughs> One of my favorite, uh, oh, here's a little deep cut for anybody out there who's a pro wrestling torch uh, VIP member. I love that Bruce Mitchell insists on calling Nikita Koloff Scott Simpson, even though Scott Simpson is no longer his legal name. Nikita <laughs> Koloff is Nikita Koloff's legal name, and Bruce Mitchell always insists on calling him Scott Simpson. He's not going to break not kayfabe that he refuses to. <laughs> you know when wrestlers talk about something being triple kayfabe? I think those are the waters we're treading into here. Uh, and Nikita's an interesting... Um, interest, interesting... Interesting is the right word. I mean, you know, the you we talk a lot about context on this show, and, and Eric Bischoff's big line on his show is context is king. And I mean, here's a guy who's just like completely out of context, right? I mean, he's the evil Soviet, then he's the nice former Soviet during the kind of like Glasnost period, you know, during the end of the Cold War. And like now he's just still a guy who just says Nikita Nikita, but is a baby face. Like, it, he's just so out of context and, and just doesn't make a damn bit of sense. It's like, this team, I mean, this whole episode, we've been talking about the Dangerous Alliance at, as being a collection of, of people who were individually great, but also somehow also being greater than the sum of its parts. And I can't think of anything that's, that's less than the sum of its parts in that, like, only... Uh, you know, only Kip Fry and, and Bill Watts and Jim Hurd could manage it kind of way 
then Sting, Barry Windham, Dustin Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat, and Nikita Koloff. I, I just don't think, you know, on one level, it's the great magnum opus, it's the great dangerous alliance moment. But on the other hand, it's like the ultimate example of just how bad the early 90s wrestling business failed the actual talent that was present. It, it's weird. This is a weird analogy. It almost reminds me of a team winning an NBA championship when the ABA was happening. Like half the talents not like the talent you need to make this actually feel as prestigious as it should isn't there. So you really can't. Yes, you have an NBA championship. Yes, you've won a war games match against the top babyface, but you did it against the top babyface and not scrubs, but like the the bench of the guys you would actually relative to the people you would actually want quote unquote starting for that match and i mean and the finish too was like and i i use this phrase a lot again you you know the origin of it if you're a follow-up files patron uh is they were like hoisted by their own petard in the most comedy mid-card way in that match too it's ultimately too that uh uh, I Zabisco brings a foreign object into the ring and he winds up taking it instead of the baby face and they pin him and that's the win. Like he loses in the way that like JJ Dillon used to lose, like a comedy manager slipping on a banana peel spot. So it's like, not only do you have this just like way lamer than they should be group of baby faces, they just like go over in the most, like, you know what I mean? Just the most eh, like disappointing way. Like when a match isn't great and when the talent isn't great, like, at least you can have a clean finish that makes the winner look strong. And they like, didn't even do that here. They were like, yeah, the baby faces win celebration, but it's just like on the, you know, just the kind of lamest boss cheating spot. Yeah, that just sounds, I mean, and and I've seen it. It's not, it's not great. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. Um, I think what's, uh, I, I hate to do thought exercises on the show because they, and uh, except for the last thing I always ask, um, but my question to you is this, uh, if Flair, obviously it's a weird question because this group wouldn't need to exist if Flair was still there, but if Flair comes back earlier and ends up, I don't know, joining in as a baby face with Sting and all of them, do you think this has a chance to that? In other words, like a Sting, Dustin Rhodes, Flair combination for the time being could work with something like the Dangerous Alliance, or did you have was part of the problem with the Dangerous Alliance that they were six or eight deep, and no one is six or eight deep? You know, if you're really asking me to engage in a fantasy booking thought exercise, I you know I I think that I would have the Dangerous Alliance as constituted. And then I would have Arn Anderson turn on them and join back up with Ric Flair. And you would have heel dangerous Alliance versus Babyface horseman. Maybe get, you know, maybe you have, uh, Arn Flair sting and Dustin Rhodes I and mean, sting had already been kicked out of the horseman once. So maybe you have like Arn Flair, Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes or something like that. But uh, if, if you're asking me to fantasy book our, uh, Rick being there during the dangerous Alliance run, I don't have Rick as part of the Dangerous Alliance. I have Rick leading Babyface Horseman against Polly. So is that yeah, a good non-answer to your question? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think I don't think that Rick Flair. I think part of the reason that Rick Flair is able to, uh, sorry, uh, I think part of the reason that Paul, uh, I think part of the reason that Polly dangerously is able to rise through the ranks at this point, uh, metaphorically speaking 
is because he represents a completely, and I don't just mean in the fact that one's a guy from the South and one's a guy from New York. I mean, they had completely different, to me, styles of being heels, in part because, as we've we've mentioned a bunch of times, Paul Heyman wasn't going to be able to kick your ass at any point. Like, Ric Flair might would probably be able to kick your ass. He was a great athlete, in and in, in not just in a meta sense, he was considered, like, the premier, one of the premier athletes in the sport, where Paul Heyman wasn't. So, like, all of that bravado, it, they're the same, they have the same level of bravado, and I don't want to say it comes off as Paul Heyman is full of shit about how great he thinks he is, but he and this is a phrase we use, he likes the smell of his own farts and the way that Ric Flair's smarts, farts actually smell good. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, that's the difference between the baby face and the heel in wrestling. You know, the great transcendent baby face isn't like, aw, shucks, humble, right? That's the mid-card baby face, really. Like, anybody who's done that, not very many people, maybe Bob Backlund, but not that many, or, or Jack Briscoe. Oh, I only just named two of the most important wrestlers the last 100 years. Uh, but not that many people have really, like, the aw, shucks thing doesn't really work at the top level, right? Usually the transcendent great baby face does have the ego. Like, think of Rock or think of Austin. But they're able to back it up because they actually are that good. The baby face knows how good he is. The heel thinks he's just a little bit better than the baby face. And he's actually just a little bit worse. And that's like the whole psychology of wrestling right there. Yeah. And I think with flares, for the most part, he is not a baby face, but he's not a baby face because he's also the dirtiest player in the game. It's not that he couldn't actually be, and he is a great, a capital G great babyface. In a way, like we said, Paul E. Dangerously, Paul Heyman, could never, ever be. Oh, certainly. I mean, it, it comes down to, at the end of the day, that legitimate heat, that that not being likable. I talked about it in the Cornette episode, that like Cornette was always the bigger heel than Bobby or Dennis or Stan or whoever he was managing. Because at the end of the day, they had the credibility of being an athlete. And like you said, Ric Flair had the credibility of being an athlete. That in spite of himself, he was one of the best conditioned wrestlers in the world for like 30 years. But Flair couldn't help but get over, you know? He was just so popular. He was so charismatic. He put in so much work in so many different towns. And so many people who went to wrestling felt like they had this connection from seeing him in person. Much like people do like today with wrestlers on the indie scene. He just had this transcendence that turned him into a babyface, even though he wasn't a babyface, just like Steve Austin. I mean, Steve Austin has always said, never wanted to be a babyface, never pandered to the crowd, never, you know, looked to the crowd and did the, oh, should I do it thing? Like, did not interact with the crowd whatsoever, was playing a heel, but still was greeted as a huge babyface because he's a conquering hero. You know what I mean? It's like Patton. Like, was George Patton a great person? No. Is he considered, like, a huge American hero by a lot of people? Yes. Uh, and I think Ric Flair has that same kind of vibe as he was just the conquering hero, and those people get over. Heyman, on the other side, is the usurper. He's the one who doesn't work hard night in and night out to build equity with someone. He just shows up on TV, says he's smart, and expects to be treated the same, which is hateable. And it, it, it speaks to the usefulness of the manager, which I think is finally starting to be recognized in wrestling again. But the idea that like a, a wrestler, no matter how hard they try, can accidentally become a babyface just by being good, right? We see that like every week on WWE TV right now. But a manager, much easier to keep a fucking heel. 
Yeah, yeah, you can you can make even likable managers unlikable just by changing who they're working with. Like Paul Heyman, if they wanted to make him not a heel, uh, not a babyface, not get over, just put him with Curtis Axel for like a couple of days. Instant. <laughs> just flatten him right on it. But they can also do the thing where, and they did a really great job with it, I, I will give them that, of kind of making you feel like, and this is the closest I've ever seen him get, um, other than as the person in charge of ECW, and that was more because it was him about him being a genius. Um, the closest I've ever seen him to actually feeling like he could become something more than ju- not just a heel, but uh, become something closer to a babyface was the interview he gave he gave to Renee Young before he used. Um, I, I, he pepper sprayed Roman Reigns uh, so that Brock could get the upper hand before their SummerSlam match, yada, yada, yada. But anyways, he did an interview with Renee Young where he actually broke down and acted like an actor in a TV show. Not in a bad way. Like it was really, I don't want to say emotionally affecting because fucking Paul Heyman, but it was the kind of thing where he's, the one way he could actually get over as a babyface is by being the best actor. He's not the best athlete, but he is somebody who can actually emote in a meaningful way that is better than everybody else. And I think that's what also came across. He does all the little stuff. Like he does the shit with the phone in the early nineties. He's really great at making you like in the war games match, feel like he's actually trying to put together a scheme. And I don't mean that in the, the, or the way we've been talking about the entire time. I mean, from an acting perspective, he's brilliant at the background work. And I think that's why this group in particular is just the perfect idea for him. Yeah, I think the secret of wrestling and maybe the secret of life is that really it's all small stuff. Like if you want to see someone, if you want to see a wrestler who does all the big stuff right, well, then you've got Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns is a wrestler who does all the big stuff right. He knows how to have the formula, quote-unquote, great main event match. He knows how to do the, you know, the big, long stand-up in the ring to sell the match. He knows how to have a safe house show match that he can do four or five nights a week. You know what I mean? Like, Roman Reigns is the perfect large strokes wrestler. But he's also one of those polarizing like figures in the history, or at least in the recent history of wrestling, uh, because of that lack or that perceived lack of doing the small stuff. And and it's uh, something that I think Seth Rollins, uh, to, to give a modern example of somebody who does a lot of the small stuff really well, and some of the big stuff, and that's why he's so beloved right now. And it's not just that he was a part of the Shield and all of that stuff. That's why he's been on a tear the last six to eight months is because he's one of the few people who at that level, at that main event level that you just don't see anymore, do a lot of the small stuff, but also understand those broad strokes. It's a really hard thing to get to. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's one of the real challenges in NXT right now, or or that's one of the challenges of kind of the mission statement of NXT is to teach that balance because... I think during this kind of, I don't want to say cold period, because it certainly hasn't been a universally cold period, but during this somewhat stagnant, especially cyclical period over the last like 15 years or so, I, I think that that blend of the small stuff and the big stuff is something that 
really kind of faded out. And I think that the wrestlers who came from the territories, which basically everybody involved in the Dangerous Alliance did, they were, you know, even Steve Austin worked in the USWA, which was, which was Memphis and, uh, and what had formerly been world-class and stuff. But, but all of those people still came from the territory era of working four or five or six nights a week um, of, of double shots, of long car rides, of picking veterans' brains all day and hoping that they would drop you just one little crumb. Like, say what you will about today's distribution for wrestling and how wrestling has never been bigger or more legitimate. Uh, whatever, how, whatever you want to say about today's wrestling, please say it. I, I'm not going to stop you. Um, but in terms of wrestlers getting really good at their craft through repetition... The wrestling business has gotten a lot worse at that part. Um, and, and I think that a lot of these subtle skills are, are missing. And I think this whole like guttural, hate-filled, vitriolic reaction to, to Roman Reigns and even to a lesser degree Charlotte recently, I think what that is, people, and I don't mean to be mansplaining to people how they feel about wrestlers they don't like, but I think that People don't really dislike those that talent, and they don't really dislike that those people, quote-unquote, like got a push that they didn't deserve or whatever. What they don't like is that there isn't subtlety to those characters, and that even though they present these characters as though they're the greatest of all time, and they might, in a sort of glitz and glamour, like I said, television way, be on that level. But when you start looking closely and comparing it with the older stuff where people were less spectacular athletes and where the show was less spectacular as a spectacle, almost every other aspect of the show was better. And like I said, I know I, I come off a lot older than my age when I talk about wrestling, but I think that revolt against, like I said, people like Reigns and Charlotte, it's not so much the revolt against the talent, it's the revolt against the way that, that, that all the underpinnings of the business have fallen apart. And now we just have talk segments and matches basically, which it's like, yeah, that's what wrestling always was, but there was always this like beautiful, frilly, uh, very intricate lace that tied those things together. And it's just gone now. And that was what the dangerous science was. It was this group of people that, and I said this about Arn Anderson, but in general should have tied the room together if they had, the rest of the furniture to put down, but they didn't. So it's just a rug and a, a beautiful rug in the middle of a very sparse room. That rug really told the room together, dude. <laughs> so now that we spent some time uh, completely bad mathing the current era of wrestling, I, I thought it'd be that was just me for the record. Everybody, Nick loves the WWE and is a, a good egg and loves wrestling. I'm I'm old and hate wrestling. <laughs> so direct your hate tweets, as Conrad Thompson would say. Direct your hate tweets to at Dave Wright's junk. <laughs> um i thought it'd be fun to if if let's say in a in a magical world paul Heyman were to reform the dangerous alliance who, who are some of the wrestlers you could see working right now or sports entertainers whatever you want to call them um that would work for that group not necessarily the like a whole list of seven but like three or four guys that you think or girls or girls, that's really important, I, I should say that. Um, performers, just in general, do you think would work in a group like that? 
Well, it's funny that you you said the whole like uh, oh, including girls bit because even before you corrected yourself, even when you were just being a misogynist and said uh, guys, <laughs> the first name I actually thought of was Sasha Banks. She's someone where she's she's played the whole spectrum during her not as long as you think it is in terms of years run, um, where you know she's been everything from just a super nicey nice baby face to a super catty evil heel. And I think she's someone who could really kind of find her lane with Heyman, just as a someone who, you know, uh, like Medusa, where she's a great blend of a character who believably can kind of pull off a lot with some of the psychological warfare aspects, but also someone who's a, a great in-ring wrestler. I think Sasha would be someone I would definitely want in my Dangerous Alliance. She'd be my first pick. Uh, I would actually, uh, also the reason I, I, I very clearly said women, I swear I'm not a misogynist was Charlotte. Charlotte would be my pick. I understand that she's maybe too big of a star uh, in a traditional sense to be a part of a group like this, but I feel like if Heyman were actually starting a new group of people to try to dominate the industry, which is what it would be framed as, I think she would be, I think her or Sasha, actually, I think those are both, those would be the number one picks, uh, deservedly so, too. I think they're two of the maybe four or five best performers on either roster, um, period. Definitely. I, I could not agree with you more, actually. I, I think it's interesting and important that we both chose a woman as the first pick. It just really speaks to like this moment in wrestling, wrestling history that especially in the WWE, the women are just far and away the most intriguing and, and kind of imagination-grabbing aspect of the show, like far and away. Yeah, it's not, I don't even think it's close, and I'm not just saying that. Like, I have not been as hyped for a pay-per-view than, than the Evolution pay-per-view in a long time, in part because I'm excited that they're going to have the tag team, they're most likely going to have a tag team championship match. Like, that is an actual exciting idea for me. I really prefer the style that the women are performing right now, and they, again, they're not just, they're not dragged down by the baggage of having been the star attraction for the company for the last 50 years. There's new storylines that we're using every single week, and there's interesting storylines, perhaps more importantly, not just new, uh, that the men are just doing the same things over and over again. Like, they're basically reforming the Wyatt family with Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler, which is not that it's going to be a cult, but like that big monster group. And it's kind of like, we just saw that. I feel like the women's division is just top notch right now. And I definitely think that's where Paul Heyman would go first. If he was restarting the dangerous Alliance. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is even like two years ago, I would have told you like, Oh, women in the WWE can only either be best friends or former best friends. Like there was just no depth to the characters. It was either the, like they're best friends cause they're girls or they hate each other cause they're girls kind of deal, you know, which, uh, it, it, it gets back to, uh, the old Chris rock joke, right? Was it Chris rock who did the bit about women hate each other. If they didn't, they'd run the world. I think that was on, I think that was on bigger and blacker. I had that bit, I believe. Uh, anyway, but uh, so, so getting away from that whole misogynist trope and like now you look at it, I was watching the Mae Young Classic, uh, the first episode last night, actually, as we record this. And uh, I just it's it blows my mind how the women now play much more realistic characters than the men in WWE. It's like, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was driving at is they're actual people like I'm interested in. And then as performers with real accomplishments. And I think part of it is you don't have like a 16 time champion and a seven, like a 15 time champion that are still orbiting the world. Like they get to, I know we talk about how dumb it is to constantly harp on things being historical firsts, but 
at the same time, it's nice that there are actual accomplishments and milestones that people can really achieve that you don't get on the men's side. And I think that's going to wash away. But I think the characters, the, the characters that aren't, again, they're not having to worry. It's not like you see someone trying, Dean Ambrose, and go, oh, he's trying to be stone cold. It's like you see Sasha and you're like, oh, she's Sasha Banks. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even like Nikki Cross to me is probably, you know, one of the crazier gimmicks out there. But it's like, she's still a person. She's just like a crazy wild woman. Like, you know what I mean? She's doing like a Sabu type gimmick or like a Sheik type gimmick. But it's like, she's still believably a real person. You know what I mean? It's like uh, Charlotte is like a super athlete and, and born into the business. But like, she's still a real person. Like you said, it's not the Dean Ambrose. Like nobody is the Donald Duck cartoon character. Nobody is, you know, the fashion police or whatever. Like even the Iconics who do a very similar gimmick, they do a much realer version of the like judgmental, you know, uh, it people and stuff. It's like all the women's characters across the board are just so much realer than the men's characters right now. And I, I was just so struck by that watching uh, the Mae Young Classic last night. So shall we continue with our, uh, with our, with our dangerous alliances? Yeah, yeah. I Alliances? I actually, I'm gonna uh, snake draft this. Um, if that's sandwich okay. pick, sandwich pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they have the sandwich round anymore. I don't think they do. <laughs> Drew McIntyre. I feel like Drew McIntyre is just the right amount of scheming bad guy and destroyer that I feel like he could work with the modern incarnation of Paul Heyman and that that again that scheming type. I think they would have fun coming up with shit to do together in a way that reminds me kind of of like a, a CM Punk. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that combination. I feel like mm-hmm. Drew McIntyre is the right level of talent to pull that off. That's a really intriguing choice. That's not someone who maybe if you had asked me to make a list of 20 names, like I wouldn't have written that one down. But you're you're making me feel foolish for uh, for thinking that way, actually, now that, now that you explain it to me. You're so wise, Nick. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like Mark always says, I learned so much. <laughs> thank you thank you i thank you so if uh if he is your kind of top main event guy you know in the stable uh my top main event guy would be samoa joe uh he's someone who once again i just think that he would be great with Heyman. i think i think people would love Heyman and joe together in much the same way that they love Heyman and brock but without some of the baggage that people have when they think about brock so i i think that um you know, Paul's already shown that he can manage a character like that just to perfection. And I think Samoa Joe is a kind of a similar place um, to where Rick Rude was in the early 90s, you know, where he's like an established worker who's been around the block from the previous generation. He's worked with a lot of top guys, but he's in a slightly different environment and he definitely does need a little help kind of getting to that tippy top tier. Like people believe him as a guy who could be in a world title match. But I don't think people really believe him as a potential world champion. And I think if you put Samoa Joe in a dangerous alliance with Paul Heyman, I think you could kind of get him up there to that championship level and you could get, you know, a really, really solid year and a half out of Samoa Joe as your as your top or second. Yeah, no, that I mean, I, Samoa Joe, I, one of my favorite favorite segments of the last year or so was Samoa Joe threatening to murder Paul Heyman with his bare hands. Yeah, so I, I, they definitely have chemistry, even though it was, again, it was Samoa Joe threatening to murder with his bare hands, Paul Heyman. Um, but Well, yeah, they, say, they say there's a very fine line between love and <laughs> But they also have this really great, uh, again, I, I keep on thinking about it, is that like scheming mind in terms of 
like wanting to come up with plans to fuck with people. Like that is what's fun about Samoa Joe on the WWE main roster is they let him go like full, just bad person who is also a wrestler, uh, which is Samoa Joe at his best. It's like, I'm a bad person who also happens to beat up people for a living. SummerSlam finish is just like from the book of ideas Dave is bound to hate. But, but it just turned out so perfectly because yeah, Samoa Joe just has that like, mean guy who's just trying to hurt your feelings yeah. you know it's it's it, it, there are times where he's he's gotten too far into the like oh i'm gonna rip your heart your arms off and shove them down your throat and i'm gonna blah 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 like he he's at times in his career slipped into kind of cutting that promo but when he's just the like guy who's a dick because he's a just a joyless dick who can also back it up in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable like holy shit that's a great character and like even though AJ Styles kind of stumbled and just kind of tackled him instead of giving him a big dramatic forearm, it's like that worked better in the moment because it, you know, Joe had brought it to this like personal place. And once again, like I was saying with Sasha, I just feel like even though Joe is this great veteran, I think that just being around Heyman and then talking together in the same segments and so on and so forth, I think that that would be something that could really make a difference for the last couple of years of, of Joe's career. And, and, and change him from kind of a, you know, a Hall of Famer to a first ballot Hall. Yeah, yeah, a Pantheon guy. Um, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, and um, we'll, we'll give you the cur- courtesy that I gave myself, and you can uh, sandwich your last pick. Oh, thank you, sir. You are courteous indeed. Uh, my last pick is actually two picks because I'm a cheater. Um, I'm going to collectively choose the revival. Uh, just because I, I feel that they are just kind of, I mean, at one point the team was called the mechanics uh, in NXT when they were just doing house shows initially together, but they really are a throwback to that, that era of the carpenter of the, the wrestler who was just there to make the baby faces and make the show really fucking good. And any, any stable needs a tag team because you need to eat up a lot of TV time and you need guys to take bumps when you do angles. And I just think that they would just be absolutely perfect. And once again, could, could, you know, really pick up some good rub for, for Heyman that I think would do them good for the rest of their lives. Yeah. If you're going to uh, double pick, I think I have to double pick, but I'm not going to pick a tag team. So I'm going to super cheat. Um, I actually, my first choice of the two is weird. It is Shinsuke Nakamura. And the reason I think that that would work is not because I think Nakamura needs a mouthpiece, but I think that Nakamura, and again, I'm basing this a lot off of the idea of him building a, a, a team for a heist. I feel like Nakamura has the kind of personality where he could be the guy you're really, really afraid of because if he ever gets unleashed the way that he can be unleashed, he could kill somebody in a way that I feel like they're the rest of the stable is kind of like your regular garden, not garden variety. I don't think it's fair to call Drew McIntyre garden variety or Charlotte, but they're not dangerous at least to me, in the way that Shinsuke can be. And I kind of like that as an edge to the group I would be creating. Yeah, I like that idea. And I mean, you've really done what I didn't there. I mean, what I really did is I, I was a dirty, lazy fantasy booker and just kind of assembled a, uh, a group of people together. But I like the way you're thinking here. And I think that if you're going to make the Dangerous Alliance special, like the original Dangerous Alliance 
was. I think you do have to create some new dynamics. So I like that a lot. And uh, because I love him, uh, because he is our generation's greatest wrestler, my last pick, my Arn Anderson, if you will, would be Kevin Owens. Kevin Owens is, to me, really who should be the next Heyman guy. I... I think Kevin Owens is sincerely one of the five best performers of this generation. And he could really end up being the best performer in terms of your overall package of, of uh, on the mic and in the ring. He's just, he's to me just an incredible talent who feels like he would have a pretty good mind meld with Heyman. And I, I that is something I, I would sincerely pay to see. It would be, to me, the floor for that would be a CM Punk Heyman grouping. And to me, the, the height of that would be young, like young Brock Lesnar, which I love, you hate, but young Brock Lesnar with Heyman, where it really felt like Heyman might take over the entire world. I don't know if Vince McMahon would ever do it, Nick. That might be too much girth in the ring at the same time. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he's basically the same size as, as Brock Lesnar, so I figure it would work out. Um, no, I, I I really, for me, that is my dream pick for the – that is the most fantasy booky thing I've, I have I, I've said so far is – like, that's who I want to be the next Taman guy. Yeah, I'd really love that for Kevin Owens. I mean, over the last couple months, he's been he's been doing the whole big bumps for big checks kind of thing with Braun Strowman. So you've got to hope that there's that there's something really, really good for that guy on the other side of that. And I think, again, a run with Heyman would, would elevate just about anybody. But when you take someone like you say, who's already a good talker, already a great performer, who who can really wrestle and who really has that kind of cat playing with a dead mouse psychology. Yeah. I think that would be tremendous. So uh, you got any plugs this week? Oh, you know, I got the plugs uh, as usual. Follow me on Twitter at Dave Wright's junk. Uh, obviously uh, make sure you check out the wrestling estate where my wrestling writing when I do it is published. Uh, if you are listening to this on Monday, last Friday's roundtable probably isn't super relevant to you because it's on Hell in a Cell and that show will already happened by the time you're listening to this. However, you can head over to the Wrestling Estate, check out the Hell in a Cell roundtable and see just how wrong I was with my picks. So follow me on Twitter, check out the Wrestling Estate, and of course, if you can find it deep in your heart to possibly deserve us, uh, head over to patreon.com slash Send us a dollar or two a month. Uh, we really, really appreciate it in spite of my uh, sarcasm and general horribleness. It does cover our production expenses and keep the lights on and, uh, and brings true joy to our dark, sad souls. Yeah, I like how you nagged them. That was nice. That was, that was a good tactic. I'm learning from, um, well, I won't say specifically who I'm learning from, but I've been, I've been watching out there and it seems like being a horrible dick is like a really effective tactic. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the Nickster. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Store, and Pocket Cast. I'm just I'm just gonna come out and say it. Pocket Cast. Let's let's add them to the the role of podcast services. So, Nick, here's my theory. Pocket Cast is a podcasting app uh, that is part of like on it's like it's on Tamagotchis, I believe. Uh, <laughs> I think it's on Virtual Pets. I, I think that's where Pocket Cast is coming from. Are you thinking of Pocket Pals? 
Uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I went to private school. Everybody had the brand name Tamagotchis. Now, I was originally going to make this announcement at the Omni, but I understand CNN was going to break the story, and I'm not going to give them the scoop. First of all, the first phase of our hostile takeover of World Championship Wrestling is complete. Please welcome the new United States Heavyweight Champion, Ravishing Rick Rude. Now, Mr. Rude and Ms. 007, Medusa and I were discussing this. This Thursday night in the Omni, Ravishing Rick Rude will destroy what's left of Sting. But you see, Jim Ross, you're a big football fan. Now, if the New York Giants all week long were preparing for the Miami Dolphins and the NFL said, yeah, now you're going to face the Pittsburgh Steelers, would that be fair? No. See, that doesn't happen in any other sport but wrestling. I'll tell you why. Because Jim Hurd and the committees and the board of directors like to give wrestlers the shaft. Two victims of this shaft have come to Rick Rude, Medusa, and I looking for legal advice because WCW says, oh yeah, forget about Barry Windham, we're going to put Ricky Steamboat in the match. And that's why they're no longer the World Tag Team Champions. Please welcome the newest members of the Dangerous Alliance, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco. isn't it now this thursday night in the omni the rightful world tag team champions arn anderson and larry zabisco ms 007 medusa myself the chief executive officer of the dangerous alliance and the man that crushed the hopes of all the little stingers ravishing rick rude the united states heavyweight champion will have the pleasure of watching Brian Bryan learn the most stunning wrestling lesson of his life because he will step in the ring with the world's greatest athlete and newest member of the Dangerous Alliance, the world's TV champion, stunning Steve Austin. You're selling quite a lineup here, Paul. It's not a lineup, it's not an army, it's not a stable, and it's not a family. It's an alliance of businessmen who will bring WCW down to its knees. You know, Jim Ross, Lex Luger, Medusa, Rick Rude, and myself were not the only people in on the plan to set up Sting. See, there was a man, very close friend of Sting's. He said, Sting, Go in the ambulance and go to the hospital. You've got plenty of time, man. Hey, Sting, if they're going to ring the bell for your match, don't worry about it, Sting. I'll delay the match. Please welcome one of Sting's best friends and a little Stinger himself. Ladies and gentlemen, beautiful Bobby Eaton. I'm looking at you, and you're starting to sweat. You're starting to say to yourself, Sting and everybody else are in just a little bit of trouble.